but you can go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. I want to welcome you all to this gathering of Hope Bible Fellowship. We're certainly thrilled to have you with us today. And if you're joining us online, welcome. My name is Cal. I'm the pastor here. And uh, if you're, maybe you're just joining us for the first time online or maybe in person, uh, if you're online, leave us your name and information in the comment section or send us a message if there's a way we can pray for you. If you're a first time visitor here, uh, we have some connection cards out on the table out front. We'd love to connect with you. If you want to fill one of those out, we'd love to know how we can pray for you. And then we'd love to be able to, you know, contact you and and tell you how much we appreciate you being with us. If there's any way we can uh, serve you moving forward. Uh, It's just... It's just a joy to be with you guys this morning, as AJ alluded to earlier. Uh, like many of us haven't seen each other in a while, and so it's really good to be with everyone today, or be not everyone, but with many of us. And uh, just uh, I'm reminded of what a joy it is to be uh, with God's people. And so uh, this morning, if you would, open to Philippians chapter 3 in your Bible or on your phone, whatever device you're looking it up. That's where we're going to be camped out today in Philippians chapter 3. What I want to ask you is this. What is the thing in your life that you put your trust in? What do you put your trust in? Who or what do you put your trust in? Now, we're in church, right? So the easy answer is to say, well, God, I trust. I put my trust in God. That's the safe answer, and you know that's what the answer should be. But the question that I want us to dive a little deeper on is, what is your life marked by? What is the defining marker in your life? If I were to interview those who know you well, your family, your friends, those you work with, those you hang out with, and ask them, say, hey, so-and-so, you know, fill in the blank with your name, what's the defining marker of this person's life? What's the thing that defines their life? What, what would they say? Now, maybe they would say kindness or care, maybe helpfulness, service, maybe your love of a particular sports franchise or some other cultural touch point. Maybe they know you're a really big Star Wars fan. What would they say is the marker of your life? Would they say it's your political affiliation that they know about you? Uh, Would they maybe say your church membership? Would they say your family or your work or your community, maybe your job? I ask this because I think it's important. For a follower of Jesus Christ, the defining marker of our lives should be trusting in Jesus Christ. So it's important for us to look inside and ask who or what are we truly trusting in. Today we're going to investigate our hearts by looking at Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 11. And Lord willing, you'll be able to see and I'll be able to see who or what we are trusting in and if it's anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would graciously bring us quickly to repentance. But let's begin by reading together Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, 
As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and share and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, as we come to this time where uh, we open your word and we dive deep into what you are saying to us in your word, Father, I pray our hearts would be uh, just be fallow ground, that our hearts would be, uh, would be tender, the soil in our hearts would be ready for your implanted word. God, that you would grow in us deep roots. God, that you would help us to see the truth of our lives before you. That you'd help us ultimately to see you for who you really are and see us in light of that. And God, if there's areas where where we've got sin in our life, where we've not been trusting in you, God, I pray you would bring us quickly to repentance and help us to just glory in the blessed good news of the gospel, of salvation by grace, through faith in you, Jesus, alone. Father, I thank you for that. God, I pray that this morning you would not let me make this about me in any way. God, if there's there's stuff that's just me, uh, God, don't let me steal that glory. I pray you would push that stuff down and get it out and that you uh, would be center stage. Jesus, be big here. This isn't about me. This is for you. It's about you. You're the one who matters. Let us glory in you, Jesus. If we boast, let us boast only in you, Jesus. Let me decrease and you increase, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. There's so much in our world that wants to get our attention. There's so much in this world that wants to get our attention as individuals and as a church It wants to get our attention off-center of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are no shortage of voices out there that, though some of them seem well-natured, well-meaning, good-natured, that if we let them, will actually steal our focus off of the absolute true gospel of Jesus. And we'll find ourselves slipping ever so subtly into things like legalism or actually proclaiming a gospel that has things added to it. And this is indeed a very dangerous temptation. And in today's passage, we see Paul warning the Philippian church about this danger. And he and gives them some great help in what is truly important and what are the things that need to be watched out for or locked out. In verse 1, right away, Paul, it kind of sounds like he's about to wrap up his letter, right? He says, finally, right? Verse 1, finally, my brothers. And you're like, well, that sounds like he's wrapping it up. And then you look and you're like, well, he's only halfway done. He's a lot like my pastor, right? (laughs) You think he's about done, he's only halfway, right? So he does that. But 
the word, the Greek word there that gets translated as finally, according to D.A. Carson, could actually be translated to, to mean so then. So instead of finally, it could be so then. It's one of those little translation things, right? So Paul's rolling into the idea of rejoicing in Christ, but also continuing to carry forth this idea of emulation of Jesus that we saw really fleshed out in chapter 2. So if you missed those sermons, I would encourage you to go back on our, either you can get on our Faith Life site and listen to them, or our audio podcast feed, or you can watch if you want the, fa- uh, the Facebook feeds, and kind of catch up there. But he's really about to give us an example of a passion to know Jesus as better than anything else and what that looks like. He's telling them some things that it appears he's told them before. If you look at verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So these are things that he has maybe told them before, either in person when he was with them or had written to them in some other communication that we don't, you know, previously have, okay? Um, but he says it's, it's no trouble for him and it's safe for them. In other words, it's good that he's reminding them of things. It's good for them to hear them again. And I want you to think about that for a minute. What a sweet reminder it is to be reminded of these sweet truths of the gospel and to have someone, have Paul, Again, remember, these are people he cared about. He loved them deeply to have him writing to remind them, hey, like I'm concerned, and I've told you these things, but I'm going to tell you again because I care so deeply. And it's no trouble for me to tell you again. I'm not, I'm not upset about telling you again, but it's safe for you. It's good for you if I tell you these things again. I, just, I think we see little glimpses of his relationship with the Philippian believers in this letter, and it's beautiful. So what is the first thing he wants them to do? Well, number one, if you're taking notes, is rejoice and remain aware. Rejoice and remain aware. And we see that primarily in verses 1 and 2. Paul commands them to rejoice in the Lord. That is to say we should be in a state of happiness and well-being in the Lord. Now, please don't hear me say that and think everything ought to be happy-go-lucky all the time. That is not what I'm saying. But they should, uh, to, to rejoice is that, that state of happiness and well-being in the Lord. They, they should be glad in the Lord. They should celebrate in the Lord. They should enjoy being in the Lord. They should enjoy knowing Jesus. Okay, do you know any Christians that look like they don't enjoy it very much? <laughs> the look on their face, right? Uh, they should enjoy Jesus, they should enjoy being a Christian. This is wonderful. They should glory in the Lord. As they're glorying in the Lord and rejoicing, they should also, though, remain aware and see danger when it presents itself. So they shouldn't just be, everything's great and we're going, everybody's together and here we go. No, no, they should be rejoicing in the Lord, but they should also watch out because there is danger lurking. And there are three groups that Paul calls out specifically, or three uh, ways he calls them out right here in, the, in this passage specifically that he wants them to be aware of. And he tells the Philippian church members to look out for these types of people. Now, I want you to know in all reality from all of our scholarly study over the years, we believe that he's actually likely speaking in three different ways, but all pointing to one group in particular. And that group we call the Judaizers the Judaizers. Now, these were a group of Jews who believed that the non-Jewish believers should be held to all of the old covenant commands that God had given the Jewish people in the law of Moses. Most notably, 
the requirement for the Jews to be set apart by circumcision. Okay, that's why it talks that I know if you've not heard this before and you start reading this, you're hearing me reading, you're like, did he just say circumcision? Yeah, I said circumcision because that was a command for the Jewish people. That was one of the things physically that would set them apart as God's people in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament that was given to Moses by God to, through the law of Moses. And so this particular group, uh, the Judaizers actually um, believed that uh, for a man to, uh, or for, for someone to become a believer in Christ, then they also had to go through this whole process of going through all of the Jewish laws and being set apart in, in that Jewish way as well. So they would require them to undergo circumcision as well. We even have an account, actually, in Acts chapter 15, and we're not going to read that whole thing now. You can go look at that, but we have an, an account in Acts chapter 15 of a debate within the early church. We call it the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, but there was this debate within the early church about the role of the law, the role of the Mosaic law in the, the Christian church post-Christ. And Paul and others argued that they need, they need not pressure the new Gentile converts to do something that was not required for salvation, because salvation was by grace through faith in Jesus alone. So he describes them in three different ways in a, to beware of, or remain aware, or look out for, okay? Number one, to beware of dogs. Now, some of y'all have dogs, and you love them very much, and you're thinking, oh, yeah, I want to bring the dogs home, not these dogs. The Greek word that's used here is not complimentary, Okay, uh, dogs were not thought of in ancient times like we think of them today. They were not man's best friend. They were scavengers roaming the streets. These are, there's no cute feelings here. This is a derogatory term. They were nasty, unclean, and dangerous. And Paul uses this word in a derogatory way towards these people, these Judaizers. Secondly, he describes them as evildoers. Now, I don't think I need to explain that one. I think that's pretty self-explanatory that they were evildoers, okay? The things they were doing and wanting people to do uh, that were in addition to the message of the gospel, therefore, were, were evil, okay? Number three is, he says, of those who mutilate the flesh. Now, the Greek word that Paul chooses here can be rendered as mutilation, Probably, though, this is to connotate that any Gentile or non-Jewish Christian who takes on circumcision in order to convert to Christianity basically isn't doing anything but just mutilating themselves. And this is pretty common for Paul. Jesus' finished work on the cross made circumcision unnecessary for belonging to God's family. In fact, Paul characterized these people as having disfigured the gospel message because they were trying to add to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So anytime we see someone trying to add something to the gospel, they're actually disfiguring it. They're marring it. And we don't want any part of that, right? We don't want any part of that. I know this guy, his name's Walker Moore, and uh, he led a, a, a missions organization that I did a, a trip with. Bethany uh, went to Australia for a month with him doing mission work uh, right, right before we got married. Um, glad she came back. Um, and uh, anyway, Walker would say, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
And I don't, I don't know that he made that up. I've heard other people say it since, but I'm going to give it to Walker, okay? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So beware, watch out. Paul wanted them to look out. These types of people and types of, of beliefs, right? They slip in through small cracks. Sometimes when I'm in a Bible study with other people from a church, especially a church that I'm the shepherd of, like I'll hear something articulated in a Bible study, and I'll, in my mind I'm thinking and following it logically to its end, and if at its end I see that it could lead us away from 100% pure, true gospel, I pull on that thread, okay? I'll pull on that thread because I'm sure to some it can seem nitpicky, but there's just too slippery of a slope that takes us into improper understanding of the message, and I don't want any part of us to be believing or teaching any part of a false gospel or a, a, a Jesus plus something else gospel. We want the true 100%, right? right pure, foolproof, right? Gospel. I try to shepherd that along as best I can. And when ideas that can mutilate come about, those I try to confront. So some of you know, you've come and talked to me and you've been like, oh, I've been listening to this guy. Uh, you really ought to listen to this guy. He's this, this pastor on TV or on the radio or whatever. And I'll be like, hey, that guy's a heretic. <laughs> and, you know, and here's why I don't like that guy. Or here's why I don't. It's not personally against him. It's because he's not teaching Uh, the proper gospel he's not teaching the full counsel of God in the way the Bible does okay or he's handling it improperly and I know I see where that leads and where that can get us and as your pastor I'd rather you not uh, be a part of those things so Paul's dedicated here though look thankfully most people when I talk to people about this they understand the intention behind it and they get it um, and everybody's, you know, obviously free to make their own choices. Um, but, but people understand the intention here. It's to remain faithful to the true gospel. Now, Paul is dedicated to the Philippians. He's dedicated to them. And he's dedicated in his writing, not just to them, but also eventually to us. Of course, he didn't realize that that was going to be the case. Uh, but inspired by the Lord, he's also writing to us. He wants to encourage them to trust not in themselves, but in Jesus Christ alone. So point number two, if you're taking notes, is refuse to trust in self. Refuse to trust in yourself. And then we find this in verses three through seven. And we come to a phrase, confidence in the flesh. And so I have to, un- I have to ask, what is, what does it mean to put confidence in the flesh? Think about that for a second. Well, I take a drink of wonderful water. What does it mean to put confidence in the flesh? Well, it would be, it's easy here to look and go, okay, well, he's been talking about circumcision, so there they were putting some confidence in that, that, that uh, getting that done made sure to make them more part of the body of Christ or something like that, and put confidence in that. But Paul actually, and, and, and so I think that's appropriate to think that. I think that that's where he's going with that. But then Paul goes a little bit further because he says, hey, if anybody has reason to trust in flesh or in the things they do, the works they do, if anybody has, has reason to trust in that, it's me, big boy, right? This is Paul, and, and he says, um, he offers up himself as the example. Okay, he didn't say big boy, I, I added that, right? But, but it, he uses himself as the example. 
See, people put their confidence in a lot of things. Most of you are putting your confidence right now in the chair you're sitting in that it's going to hold you up, right? Like, and you didn't really, you didn't look at it and check it out and kind of test it first. You just went full, full rear to pad, right? And, and sat right down and trusted that it was going to hold you up. You had confidence in it, right? People put their confidence in a lot of things, but Paul had more reason than anyone to put his confidence in his Jewishness, but he counted it all as loss compared to actually knowing Jesus. He knew that none of this other stuff truly mattered. So what are some things that Paul could have placed his confidence in? Because I'm going to list these because I think it's important because I think if we're real honest, some of us would maybe put our confidence in some of these things sometimes and maybe not even realize it, or maybe put our confidence in them, uh, or things like them, things connected to them. So what are some things, according to this list that Paul gives of the things that, hey, if anybody has reason for confidence, I do, but I don't, but I count it all as lost. What are some things he could have put confidence in? Well, uh, number one, a ritual. So he, he could have put confidence in a ritual that he would was circumcised on the eighth day, which was according to the law of Moses. Okay, they were they were doing what they thought they needed to do at that point, right? And what they should have he should have done that at that point because this was prior to Jesus, right? So, but he put confidence in it in this ritual that this ritual would somehow. Uh, or he was saying he didn't put confidence, excuse me, in this ritual that it would somehow save him. But don't we sometimes put confidence in our rituals? Oh, well, if I just get up in the morning and go to church, that's enough. Yeah, but have you trusted in Jesus? And does your life reflect that? Or are you just going through some motions, like re- just religious activity? Well, if I, uh, I, I, I know, you know, I'll just get up and I'll read my little devotional book and... and Drink my coffee, which is a glorious thing, but uh, anyway. And we put our confidence in the ritual, not the Lord, over what we're doing, right? So, so is there a ritual we place confidence in? Paul could have placed his, his confidence in his ethnicity. He was a Jew. I believe, I believe he actually says, and I've got to find it here to make sure I get it right, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, it's like... I don't, I mean, when was the last time you heard someone say, I'm a Dixonian of Dixonians, right? I'm an, I'm going to mess this one up. An Illinoisan of Illinoisans. Okay, nobody, no, first of all, nobody wants to make that claim right now, unless, unless they're running for governor, then they might, right? But nobody wants to make that claim right now, right? People are leaving, right? So, so he could have trusted in his ethnicity, right? He could have trusted, I realize that being an Illinoisan is not an ethnicity, okay? I understand that. It was not a great illustration anyway um his rank he was i'm a pharisee he was one of the the religious leaders you know they were they were supposed to be honored his tradition oh his tradition oh i've been in churches and even a church that's only 14 years old has tradition okay and 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 there's some places where you go and they they put a lot of faith in their tradition that that is what is going to carry them through so there are some churches that go through a lot of rituals and traditions every week in the same way, and they put trust in those things instead of in the Lord. And it didn't work. So Paul could have put his, his confidence in his tradition, in his rule-keeping. He was 
oh, blameless as far as the law, he says, you know, he kept the law, he kept the, did all the little things in the 600 laws or whatever. Did he really? That would be tough, right? So anyway, so he put no confidence in that, put, put no confidence in his zeal that he was zealous for people to obey the Lord and do the right thing and you got to do this. In fact, he actually, and is obeying the law and obedience, and he was the one who went out zealously and got the, this guy is the one who was going and getting Christians and bringing them in chains and, and capturing and persecuting the church. This guy is the guy that when they stoned the first martyr, when they stoned Stephen to death, they killed Stephen. The Bible tells us that they put their coats, uh, their cloaks at the feet of Paul. He was Saul then, right? So he was there when someone was killed for being a Christian. He says, if anybody has any room for any confidence in what they do or who they are, their flesh, it's this guy right here, right? But he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. See, Paul wanted them to know that all of his accomplishments, his nationality, his ethnicity, his work, and his obedience to the law, he counted it all as loss because it paled in comparison to resting in Christ alone. Knowing Christ means resting in, trusting in, standing in Christ alone for salvation. Throwing yourself upon the mercy of God just as if you were throwing yourself upon that chair you're sitting in. To trust in Christ alone. So Paul wants him to know, don't rest in, don't trust in, don't have any confidence in the flesh, but rest in Christ alone. And that's point number three, again, if you're taking notes. But uh, verses 8 through 11 is where we find this. In verse 8, Paul goes further. So he just said what, what I read in verse 7 about counting it as loss, right? Whatever gain he had, he counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he goes on, he goes further let us, letting us know that Jesus is superior to anything. He says that basically, he says all those other things he counted as loss, the things he lost are rubbish. Now, that is strong language. I realize today that's not a word that a lot of us use all the time. We read it, we see rubbish, and we think, oh, he means trash because I think that's what it is in Great Britain, right? And we may have heard that or seen that maybe in a TV show. So we think trash. But the Greek word actually that's used here is, uh, is skubala. Okay, skubala. And that word uh, actually uh, refers to dung. Refers to dung. As if to say, all this other stuff I count as dung so that I may know Christ. The point is he's using a strong term. He's using a strong term to show us, to show them that nothing was as important to Paul as knowing Jesus. And not just that, not just that nothing was as important as knowing Jesus, but all that other stuff he actually counted as trash or dung. It's sewage compared to knowing Jesus. See, it's not just ignoring it. 
It's not just ignoring that other stuff, but it's that the joy of Jesus is so great that he would actually count it all as lost, all as rubbish, so that he could glory more in Jesus Christ. When he says, then he goes on. Like, he keeps going. And it it intensifies, right? And it says, he counted all things to be lost. Everything, not just his identity, but everything he saw. Everything else he saw as a disadvantage. So not just bad. He's not saying bad. He's saying it's actually, everything else is actually a disadvantage when compared to knowing Jesus. The surpassing worth. Surpassing worth, there's not anything that gets better. It's, it's the superiority of Christ. Like there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. And Paul wants us to know that everything I had, that in that world, he should have been thought of as Top's church dude, right? Uh, Top's religious guy. He says, I count all of that as lost compared to knowing Jesus. And I look at my life, guys, and sometimes I'm like, wow. What have I treasured? What have I treasured in my life? And it sometimes might look like I treasure that more than Jesus. But Paul says it's all loss. It's all rubbish. And as Paul rounds out this passage, he points us to three theological realities that we would do well to understand in resting in Christ alone. He points to three Big theological realities, and I'm going to do my best to just kind of summarize them, okay? Um, But he points to justification, to sanctification, and to glorification. That's a lot of efficacions, right? Okay? So he points to justification. Don't worry, we're going to go through them one at a time. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. I'm going to explain what they mean, and then you're all going to know. And you're going to be like, great, I know that now. Okay? I'm just kidding. I'm not, just like always, I'm not as concerned with you knowing a word. I'm concerned with your heart understanding the meaning, okay? So don't think of this as a uh, uh, lecture in what this word means. I want you to know what this verse is saying to your heart, okay? So the first one we come to is justification, and we see that if you look to verse 9, says, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Oh, and by the way, have you noticed Paul could write a run-on sentence like nobody's business? I mean, you're, I notice it a lot while I'm reading it out loud because it's like, okay, there's a comma, okay, there's a dash, okay, there's another comma and another dash. And anyway, justification. And you could shorten or or kind of subtitle that, Christ alone as our righteousness. So here's here's the thing. Only righteous people can enter heaven. Only righteous people can enter heaven. But according to scripture, no one, not one, is righteous. So do you see the problem? So, Only righteous people can get into heaven, and no one is righteous. Uh Uh-oh. I think we have a problem. Yes, here's what it is. We need another source of righteousness, because we don't have that in and of ourselves. So we need another source of righteousness. Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. This will be on the boards behind me, but it says this. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Let me stop there. Think forward payment, okay? Propitiation, forward payment, okay? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, or let's, let's just say this, in theological terms, we refer to this righteousness, this righteousness that those who have trusted in Jesus, this righteousness that when Jesus Christ, uh, 100% man, 100% God, he comes to earth, born of a virgin. We just celebrated that at Christmas, right? Born of a virgin, grows up, lives a perfect life, never sins, and goes to the cross and gives his life willingly on the cross in our place for our sin. And on the cross, he takes the sin of sinners upon himself and exchanges that for his righteousness, his right standing before God, and puts that gives that to the sinner in exchange for their sin. We call it the great exchange, okay? Now, that righteousness, in theological terms, we call imputed righteousness because it is imputed or imparted. It's given. It's put on our account. And God has provided for that in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. It's a free gift, It's a free gift. That sounds like a great deal. So he takes my punishment on the cross for my sin, literally becoming sin in my place, right? Uh, He takes my, the wrath of God that I rightfully and justly deserve. It's what I deserve. Okay, whenever I hear somebody say, you don't deserve that, I'd be like, you don't know what all I deserve, right? (laughs) You know? And and when, I, when someone says, hey, how are you doing? Hey, I'm better than I deserve. Amen. Right? And so, so he, when he took all of that, that when he exchanges that righteousness and imputes that on the account of those who have trusted in him. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't be holy enough on your own. You can't do enough. You can't go to church enough. Uh, to, to outweigh all the bad stuff you did. You can't, you know, go to confession or take enough communion or any of that stuff to outweigh all the sin in your life. The only thing that will make you righteous is Jesus' death on the cross for your sin in your place and exchanging your sin for his righteousness. That's what it means to be justified. It's a gift of God. It's received by faith. That's why Jesus, in his public ministry, called people to re, excuse me, repent of their sin and believe the gospel, believe the good news. The good news that he takes away the sin of the world and he gives us his righteousness. I've heard it said before 
someone well-meaning, well-intentioned, trying to explain righteousness. I've actually used this before, right? Uh, someone trying to explain what it means to be, ju- excuse me, justified. What it means to be justified means that God makes it just as if I'd never sinned. I don't know, have you heard that before, right? So, so you've heard that before, just as if I'd never sinned. But I also heard from the writing of, of my seminary professor, Dr. Jeff Dodge, that, that more closely and maybe more accurately, what it means is just as if I'd always obeyed. Because that sin is gone, it's wiped away. So it's not just as if I never sinned, it's just as if I'd always obeyed. See, we don't only get forgiveness, but we get Jesus' own right standing before God imputed to us. It's put on us. And I talk about it a lot because it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. So that's justification. Number two, we find in verse 10, sanctification. Sanctification. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Paul knew that he was not done yet. That God wasn't done with him yet. And I know God's not done with you yet because you're looking at me and breathing. Okay, at least I think most of you are breathing. All right? God's not done with you yet. And when he is done with you, you'll know because you'll be with him. You're not done yet. I've talked about sanctification a lot in the Philippian series, so we're not gonna, I'm not going to beleaguer the point, but is that process from the point of conversion, from the time we trust in Jesus Christ, we repent of our sin and believe the good news of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, then he begins this, this growth plane of making us more and more like Jesus. And in 10 years, we ought to be more and more uh, grown and sanctified than we were 10 years ago. And, and we have a part to play in that, in, uh, you know, in being a part of a church and, uh, and, and being discipled and sharing our faith and rejoicing and fellowshipping and all that. We have a part to play in that, but... But God's the one who does the work of it. But Paul knew he wasn't done yet. He knew the Philippians weren't done yet. And J.I. Packer wrote this in, in his book, Knowing God. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Once you become aware that the main business that you're here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place on their own accord. So if you're out there and you're looking for purpose in life, the purpose of your life is to know God, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Sanctification is growing to be more like Jesus, to know Jesus more and to become more like him. And that is a step-by-step process. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a lifelong journey. And I can tell you, I'm different than I was 10 years ago. I'm different than I was 20 years ago, but I'm not where I'll be in another 10 years, hopefully. <laughs> right? Um, number three the third kind of theological kind of big idea that he gives us here is glorification glorification and that's in verse 11 that by any means possible i may attain the resurrection from the dead so glorification you can write down look forward to your resurrection look forward to your resurrection trusting and resting in the finished work of Christ upon the cross and seeing his daily working in our lives, making us more and more like him, should increase our anticipation for the glorious end, the final resurrection that we will see when we see Christ and be with him for eternity. And if you skip ahead to the end of chapter 3, you're going to see two glorious verses. 
that we'll cover in a future message, but that connect here. And Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We'll be raised by the power of God, given new bodies. And we ought to be looking forward to that. Okay. Now we don't want to be like we don't want to ignore everything going on here. We still need to be growing here and knowing God here, but we need to anticipate that final day when all is said and done, and all tears are wiped away, and we're we're with Jesus in eternity. So at the beginning of this, and I'm actually going to ask if Dana and the band would come up. Um, and get ready to play. But I want to ask some questions. So the question at the beginning of the, of the message I asked was, who or what do you place your trust in? Maybe I should have also amended it to say, what do you treasure? What are the things that you treasure and trust that mark your life? What's your life marked by? I want to real quick... Just go through three questions as we look at the distinguishing marks of someone who's been justified and who is being sanctified. And I want to kind of ask these questions of our own hearts, of our own lives. These are, think of these as three of the marks of following Jesus, three of the marks of a Christian. So number one is... uh, a, a follower of Christ is marked by serving by the Spirit of God. So the question for you to ask in your heart is, are you serving by the Spirit of God? Or are you just getting bored with this whole thing? Because when we get into trusting in ritual and all of that stuff, and, and, and our own service and our own power and all of that, like it starts to get real boring real fast. And when we're not trusting and and we're not serving in the spirit of God, we're serving in our own power, uh, then we start to get real burnt out real fast, right? So are you serving by the spirit of God? Mark number two, question number two. A Christian will boast in Christ Jesus alone. Are you boasting in Christ Jesus or does your life boast in something else? And number three. Are you at the place in your life where you put no confidence in the flesh or the things of the flesh? Because we find that a a believer in Christ puts no confidence in the flesh. That we put all of our confidence, all of our trust, all of our resting in Jesus. So do you put no confidence in the flesh? Or have you, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but you've let the cares of the world and some of the other stuff that's gone on, you've let that creep in. And steal some of your confidence away. And now you're like, uh, yes, I trust in Jesus, but I also this and this and this. Have you added to your confidence? And I just, if the answer is yes to that, or if as you think about these questions, um, I want to invite you to repent. Because here's the good news of it all. Jesus died for that sin too. And for some reason, I haven't figured it out yet, but we think we have finally like, done the straw that broke the camel's back. Like We think we finally 
sinned enough that he doesn't want us, and we're wrong. You're wrong. Because he tells me over and over again that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. Like, he knew. He knew. And he still gave his life willingly and bids you to repent of your sin and trust in him. Believe the good news. So wherever you're at, would you stand with me this morning? Wherever you're at in your life, wherever you're at uh, in your walk with the Lord, maybe you've never trusted in Jesus. Maybe you've never truly become a Christian. You've never started to follow Jesus. And, and maybe that's what we need to settle today. Maybe you need to settle that with God, okay? Uh, maybe you're someone who's, again, been a Christian for a long time, but you realize there's things in your life that are just off track and you need to work more on your sanctification. Just Repent believe the good news and then come get some help come talk to me uh, or talk to like look there's nothing magical about me okay i'm the pastor i'm here to shepherd you to proclaim the word to help to help you grow in your relationship with christ but you can help each other grow in your relationship with christ i'm happy to pray with you to work with you to take you through things happy to do that but it doesn't have to be me That's the beauty of the body of Christ is that we can minister to one another also. So if you have a need in any of these areas, I would love to talk with you. I'll be around afterwards, um, but you can also turn to the person on the right or to the left or someone you know from the church. You can say, hey, I need help in this area. And I bet you, well, I won't bet you because I don't want to gamble on Sunday morning. Maybe that wasn't as funny as I thought it was going to be. But I'll, I'll guarantee you, they're not going to tell you no. They're not going to tell you no. Even if they got to get somebody else to help, they're probably not going to tell you no. All right? Uh, as we sing this final song, I want you to ruminate on these things, think on these things, to pray on these things. Maybe some of you, the answer maybe you don't need to sing. You just need to silently pray and speak to the Lord. Some of you, maybe you, you've been like, felt like your heart was kind of trampled on and you need to talk to the Lord and let the, just let the words of the song wash over you. Um, and some of you just need to worship the Lord and cry out to him during the song. Whatever it is, whatever God's doing in your heart, um, we're, we're here for it. And uh, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to turn it over to these guys for our final song. And I'll be around afterwards if you need anything. God, thank you so much, Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. And we keep coming back to that because we'll never get over that. That you rose from the grave, proving that God accepted your sacrifice. That you are God, that you do forgive sin, even the ones that we think you won't. Help us trust in you with every fiber of our being. And God, when there's areas in our life where we try to steal some of that confidence away for something else and we try to put it in something we've done, God, Bring us quickly to repentance. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you or maybe watching online and they've never met you, Jesus, they don't know what it means to be a Christian and to follow you, I pray today would be the day they would reach out, they would get help, that they would surrender to you, and then they would find someone, they would get a hold of us or contact someone they know who can help them know what it means to follow you daily, Jesus. Help me be more like you. 
Help me be someone worth imitating. Help me trust in you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Sing.